Well, if you are just joining us in this in this series, this is the last part. Uh, if you didn't already know, this is Lordship versus Free Grace, kind of a conversation around where should we stand biblically? Where should we stand biblically? So Lord, I pray that you would just please bless your word. Give me the words to say. I need your help. I need your help desperately. Lordship salvation typically is defined like this. And this is pretty much verbatim what John MacArthur teaches um, as the biggest proponent of Lordship salvation. He'll say, and the, that theological camp will say, hey, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. It's the whole idea that full yielding, full surrendering, um, giving one's life over to Jesus in complete allegiance and loyalty is the equivalent of real faith. And the free grace side of things says, uh, hold on, let me push back on that. We have to yield to his lordship and surrender to him as lord of our life to be a believer, to really have saving faith. If there's even a difference between saving faith and normal faith, to what degree do I have to surrender? To what, how much does Jesus have to be lord of my life? What areas of my life have to be submitted to his lordship? And then free grace comes in and goes, hey, let's, let's take away the whole veil and let's just say we're saved by faith or through faith by grace. Let's not make this complicated, Lordship, guys. And Lordship goes, but there must be fruit. There must be evidence, there must be works. And up to this point, you should already know where I stand. Um, but the last thing we need to address, we talked about fruit and abiding, salvation, repentance, faith, uh, the new nature we have. Uh, we talked about um, last time, the presence of the Spirit in our life. Today we're talking about good works, good works. Now, free grace, that camp typically goes, hey, do not mix justification with salvation. In other words, hey, let's, let's make sure we don't conflate the idea of being justified with being sanctified. Because salvation, they'll talk about the threefold process. We have been saved, it's done, it's sealed, it's secured. But we are being saved, it's a process of sanctification, and we will be saved, it will be finally realized, and it will reach its climax, that kind of thing. And so the free grace kind of side of things will typically say, hey, so just so you know, there's a difference, there's a difference between a disciple and a believer. John says, I know where you stand in your office. In fact, you're standing there now. You're not wrong, my friend, I stand here three hours a day. And you guys are crazy for being here at all. Like, you know what you're getting into. You're, you're crazy. By now, you're crazy for being here. I love it. And so, what we need to establish is, is there actually a biblical, is there reason biblically to say that a disciple, one who's devoted to following Jesus as a student, as a learner, is there a difference between a disciple and a simple believer? Like uh, it, our degrees of loyalty just just indicative of one's maturity, and I'd say that of course there's 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 variance in the church of degrees of loyalty and surrender and dedication and faithfulness. I'm not knocking on that, but when it comes to the whole conversation, free grace will go pause. You need to know that disciples are different than believers. You can't expect every believer to be a devoted disciple that is learning and following and studying and, and, and you know, going after Jesus. And so we're just going to look at scripture. I, I've, I've pulled up every 
I think every instance of disciple believer that's worth addressing. Um, and we're going to talk through this because if that's true, then, well, nothing I've said previously falls apart, but, but it's just something that we should think through. Let's make sure the Bible actually changes today. Okay. If it doesn't, if this screen does not change as I'm going through the scriptures, let me know. Let me know. Okay. So the question I have as we address, like, are, is a believer different than a disciple? Well, all disciples are believers, but not all believers are disciples. Typically, is how it's framed up. I would say, okay, so there are believers and then there are followers, right? That's what you're saying. That means there are students that learn and follow Christ, and then there are believers that don't. Uh, there are those who have believing loyalty to Christ, and there are those who have, like, a divided loyalty to Christ, but they're saved, they have faith. So the scripture actually delineate between basic bare minimum believers, like who are saved, have redemption, all that, versus a devoted believer who's more of a disciple. Does scripture actually differentiate between the two? Okay. The word disciple in the Greek, as it's used in the New Testament, uh, in the English is pronounced mathetes. Mathetes. The, the word disciple literally means a learner, one who is a disciple or a pupil or a student. Now, the word believer literally means a believing one. The Greek word in the English is pistos, which means faithful, reliable, trustworthy, believing, one who is persuaded with loyalty to the faith. In regards to the faith, literally, it means the fullness of faith, one who is a believing one, okay? Now, just going off the definitions alone that are going to be used in the New Testament, do those sound different? A disciple is a pupil, a learner, a student, one who follows. A believer, even just your bare minimum, I believe the gospel, is someone who is faithful, reliable, trustworthy, believing, not in, it's in, not in, in perfection and totality, but one who is persuaded with loyalty to faith. It literally means fullness of faith, one who has a fullness of faith. I mean, just off the definitions alone, I don't see much difference. The aspect of faith is present in both. Uh, I'll, I'll say it like this. You can have a disciple who follows someone and is a student of someone without having the presence of faith. So you can, you can technically, like you'll have uh, in the book of John, uh, the, the Jewish leaders will say, we're disciples of Moses. Well, they're not trusting in and believing in Moses as their salvation. They know that the God of Israel saves. In some sense, they have put some stock into the law and what they do for the law in relation to the law, okay? But what they're saying is we're devoted to following the teachings of Moses. They don't trust in Moses to save them. Uh, they might trust in the law and the words that are given through Moses as a means to get to heaven, uh, as a means to, hey, we need to do this to get to the kingdom. But I want you to see that you can have a disciple, one who is a student of someone, a disciple, but doesn't necessarily believe or trust in the gospel. Just as you can, uh, I don't know if the same is true of believer though, as you're going to see in Matthew 28. Let's just start in Matthew 28. Meaning you can have an unbelieving student. I can be a student of mathematics. I can be a student of uh, Aristotle. I can be a student of the greatest uh, philosopher in our day. You know, so I, just because I'm a student of someone doesn't mean I believe or trust in them. So it seems to be that you, you can have a disciple 
as someone who is a student of the words of scripture, but not necessarily someone who uh, believes or trusts in Jesus for their salvation, as we'll see in John. I don't believe we can say the same about believer, though. I think, uh, as we're going to see, believer is synonymous with one who is devoted to following Christ. Don't ask the question of to what degree and how much. That's stupid. Matthew 28. I ain't playing games. I've been at this for a long time. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus commissions the disciples. Hopefully you can see the text. He says, go and make disciples. He doesn't say make believers. That's assumed within the disciple, okay? Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, okay? So this is the aspect of the student, teaching them to observe, to do, to follow all that Jesus has commanded, okay? That's what they're observing or doing. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We're going to see this happen in the book of Acts. They do precisely this. They make disciples of all nations, starting with Jerusalem. Then it goes out to the um, rest of Judah, Samaria, and um, ultimately the Gentile world, which I believe are non-Jews, not just dispersed Israelites in pagan nations. Acts chapter 16 is a good place to show you that at least in this is the only text I could find in the entire New Testament that used the word disciple and believer in the same verse. Okay, That doesn't necessarily mean the two are entirely different or distinct from each other the way that the free grace individual will say. But there might be nuance to this. So watch. Paul comes to Derby and Lystra. And there's a disciple there named Timothy. Sound familiar? Timothy's a disciple, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. So you have three different kinds of people. You have, well, four. Technically, Paul's an apostle. He meets a disciple, one who is a student or a pupil of who? Uh, seemingly, this, at least the Hebrew Scriptures. I don't know if Jesus is involved, but he's a disciple, which means if he is a disciple of, of, of the teachings of Jesus, the rabbi, because um, honestly, if you look at the book of Acts, Christianity is viewed as just another sect of Judaism. That's how Christianity is viewed. Is that, oh, this is just a new sect, a new uh, camp within Judaism, with Jesus as the, as the teacher, as the, well, as the Messiah, more. A disciple is there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. So Timothy's mama is a believer, but his daddy was a Greek. That might insinuate that the daddy was not a believer, which means the gospel has come all the way to Lystra and Derby. That's cool. So I looked up the word disciple and the word believer, same Greek words that I gave you up front. Does it mean that uh, Timothy's mama is not a devoted student like Timothy is? Does it mean that Timothy's not a believer, but he's a student? Let's go all the way to Acts chapter 2, and we'll see this thing all the way through. All right? Watch this. Because that's a good question to ask. Like, it is... Someone said, hello, host. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks for asking. Because that's the question that I, I've really never addressed in my own mind in theology was, hey, is a disciple different than a believer? We know the 12 apostles are, are different when it comes to... They're on a different level, different commission to do something different. They play a different role in the church. 
in a different season of human history. So they're different for sure from your typical everyday believer in that sense. But as a disciple, can you have a believer who's not a disciple? Acts chapter 2, watch what happens. Peter preaches a fire sermon. Those who received it were baptized, right? And there were added 3,000 souls that day. It's a good day for Peter. It's a great day. And they devoted themselves. Who's they? Well, the 3,000 souls that received the word and were baptized, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So these seem to be people who are students. They're devoted to learning and following the ways of the rabbi Jesus that have been passed on to the disciples. And they're devoted to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They're not called disciples. They're just called those who received the word and believed. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Is there a distinction between those who believed versus those who believe and are dedicated? No, it just says everyone who believed up to this point, which you're looking at, what, 3,500 possibly? Because 1 Corinthians talks about how Jesus appeared to the 500, about 500 people, not limited to that, but at least that. So you're, if everyone's present, all who do believe, you're looking at about, what, 3,000, 3,500 people. And the people who believe are together, had all things in common. These are the people devoting themselves to the teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread. Okay, you go down to verse 47, and this is very important. God added to their number. Whose number? Those who believed. It does not say they're disciples. That's not the, that's not the language that's used. I'm just hope, hoping that you see from what I've gathered, a believer is a disciple, right? A believer is a disciple of Jesus. This is literally what you are at when you come to faith. It's how God has wired this thing. So watch, God adds to their number those who were being saved. So more believers, not disciples, at least that's not the language used, which means either these are not devoted, dedicated people, or believers are indeed disciples. Acts 5.14 is the next time you'll see this same language used. Acts 5.14. It says right here, more than ever, believers are added to the Lord. Same idea we saw in chapter 2. God is adding to their number daily those who are being saved, those who believe. And so more than ever, God is adding, or those are being added to the Lord, believers, women, men. And then talks about all the miracles Peter does. I don't want to get caught in the weeds. There's a lot of scripture I'm trying to get to. Just to show you, I'm going to give you an aerial view of believers and disciples. Now, Acts chapter 6. In these days, the disciples were increasing in number. Are these just devoted believers? who do the teachings of Jesus and are loyal to Jesus as Messiah? Or are these still believers? Well, we saw in Acts 2, God adds to the number those who believe. In Acts 5, believers are added to the Lord. Same idea here. We have an increase in number, but here it's disciples. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the apostles get to figure out this mess that they didn't sign up for, right? And they summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, disciples, those who are believers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Seven men among you. So, so these disciples are doing the picking out, the voting of sorts, the considering who is a, a good candidate, uh, full of the spirit and wisdom, who can be appointed to this duty. And the apostle Peter says, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Okay. And with what they said, pleased the whole gathering of disciples. He calls brothers, those who are being added to their number, right? And they chose Stephen. There they set before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We already defined faith in the first episode, like 17 hours ago. That's how long the series is. Good luck. Those who believe the gospel are obedient to the faith. That's what it means to believe. It's an act of obedience. It's a conscious decision to believe and obey the message God has brought regarding his son and salvation. You're obeying the faith being presented to you. This is not talking about sanctification. This is talking about believing the gospel. That's why the, the word of God increasing is the same as the disciples being added is the same as believing or being obedient to the faith. It's the same thing. So to believe the gospel is to be obedient to the message God has brought, to believe in the Son, right? So therefore, these who are believing, obedient to the faith, not sanctification, but justification, they are called disciples. They're called disciples. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Saul is actually called, he's referred to as breathing threats against the disciples. Against the disciples. Against the church, against the believers, against only devoted followers of Jesus, those who are really doing his word. No, it says disciples of the Lord, those who are students of Jesus. The rabbi, they went to the high priest, he went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Was Paul only looking for devoted followers of Jesus? Was he only looking for those who are loyal? No, disciples are anyone belonging to the way. That's who he's going after. Verse 10, there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And God visits him in a vision and goes, hey, my boy Saul is here. Oh, Saul? No, 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 not Saul. Yes, he's my chosen vessel. Go get him. Okay, Lord, I got to do it because you told me to. Verse 26, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples there. The disciples. And they were all afraid of him for they didn't believe he was a disciple. What did they not believe? Did they, be, did they not believe that he was truly devoted? 
Did they not believe that he was a learned student or pupil of Jesus the Messiah and the rabbi? No. This simply means that they weren't convinced he really believed in Jesus and was a part of what's going to be called the way in Acts chapter, I forget where the disciples are first called uh, Christians. In Acts 11, they're called Christians. They didn't believe that he really was a part of this new movement Jesus brought in, being those who looked to him for salvation and righteousness alone. So he attempted to join just the devoted followers. No, the church, man. This is literally the church. Acts 10, 45. If you're a believer, by definition, per the way God has set it up, you are a disciple. Acts 10, 45. The believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed when they saw the Spirit of God fall on Cornelius and his family. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even among the Gentiles. Whoa! But it says only the believe. Why did Peter bring just believers? Well, these could be devoted followers. Why, why aren't they called disciples then? Acts eleven twenty five. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. My guy is out there. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church. Okay? And in Antioch, the disciples, the church were first called Christians. So only the devoted, loyal followers and students of Jesus are called Christians. Those who simply believe and then do nothing else for the rest of their life, they're not Christians. They're not part of the church. These are three different ways of saying the same thing. A Christian, a believer, a disciple, the church. Do you see it? Because there are people who don't want to see it because they don't want that element of devotion and, and, and you know, actually like following Jesus because they think you're adding works to faith by doing that. We've addressed this over and over, over and over. So I'm not going to beat a dead horse because I, that's weird anyway. Why would you beat a dead horse? So the disciples determined, what do you mean? Well, there's a guy named Agabus. He's a prophet. He goes, look, there's going to be a famine all over the world. The prophets come down to Jerusalem, which is where the apostles are. The disciples determined, hey, everyone according to his ability, send relief to the brothers. So they did that. They did that. It's interesting that even the apostles, even the apostles, um, are referred to as disciples though they are on a different level in terms of what they're called to do. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard Paul quote, uh, I think Paul's in, where you at, Paul? Where you at in the world, my guy? Where are you? Where are you? Antioch. Paul set sail. I don't think it matters where he is, but he's in a place. And either way, he's preaching the gospel. And he quotes right here, Isaiah 49. He says, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. In other words, salvation is for the Gentiles too. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So here we have believing Gentiles, right? 
If you say yes, you're walking into my trap. Verse 52, same people, those who believed among the Gentiles in that city. There are some Jews actually that try and stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they're driven out, but they shake off the dust from their feet and they went to Iconium and the disciples that are left in that city who were believing Gentiles were filled with joy. So those who believe have eternal life and are called what? To be filled with the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit seems to be appropriate for a disciple or a believer, doesn't it? Acts 14, 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they just casually stoned Paul, right? Dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. How mangled and beaten up and unconscious do you have to be for people to think, yeah, he's dead, throw him outside the city. But then the disciples gathered around him. He rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby, like you do after you get stoned. He wasn't high. He actually probably died. When they preached the gospel to that city, he made many disciples. Oh, it sounds like what Jesus called the disciples to do in Matthew 28. The apostles were called to go and make disciples. What do you think Paul's doing? Well, they're only disciples once he stayed there long enough to educate them and teach them, instruct them. Oh, really? At what point does that effectively happen? At what point do you go from believer to disciple? Same question I have for free grace, free grace individuals that they have for me. Where they, well, at what point are you living in sin? At what point are you walking in the darkness? At what point are you practicing sin? At what point, okay, at what point are you a disciple and not just a believer anymore? How do you quantify that? Or how do you measure that? So he strengthens the souls of the disciples. Not only does he make disciples in that city, he returns to previous cities, right? He's going to other cities that he's been to where churches have been set up, believers are there, and he strengthens the souls of the disciples. Some of those cities, he didn't have a long time to teach and instruct and reveal the ways. Look, these disciples in whatever city they are, believers rather, they're called disciples, encouraging them, continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. Isn't that interesting? That believers seem to be disciples everywhere you look. Why do they say believers? Sometimes to emphasize the fact that they have come to believe specifically in Jesus as the Messiah. Tyler says, how could you come against something that called free grace? Grace is free, but the theological camp usually identified as free grace theology doesn't, isn't just if grace is free. Everyone believes that. <laughs> At least everyone who reads the scripture and like, receives the gospel in faith. You believe, yeah, grace is a free gift. But the way they interpret that, what they do with that, everything that surrounds that concept, it seems like there's a perversion and a twisting of that concept. So no one's denying that grace is free, but free grace theology, I should say, is a theological camp within Christianity that, from my perspective, has a fundamental misunderstanding of all the things we've discussed in this, in this conversation. Acts 14, uh, 27 to 28, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how they had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, 
and they remained no little time with who? Well, they were with the church only, right? So did they only spend time with like the secret society of the, of the, um, of the really mature and devoted believers in the church? No, man, they're with the church. Don't get weird. Acts 15, 5, some believers belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and they said, it's necessary to circumcise the believing Gentiles. Nope. Acts 15, 10, they talk about how they shouldn't place a yoke on the neck of the disciples. So let me take you to Acts 15. There's some that I just want to skim over because there are other ideas I want to get to, but uh, this is the whole, hey, what do we do with Gentile believers? How Jewish do they have to live, essentially? Um, well, some Pharisees rise up who do believe. They're called believers. And they go, well, it's necessary to circumcise them. There's still this confusion about how the law fits into the new covenant and how it relates to a believer. Go down to verse 10 and they decide, yeah, um, let's not put God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples. Well, who's... Are they only talking about what devoted followers should be doing? Or is this for the church, for the believers? This is a discussion about what to do for believers. Some people don't think this through. Like, they really don't. And I'm here to be the voice of reason as best as I can to do all this research and stay up till 2 a.m. every morning, seven days straight, so that you can have the best possible information that I, that I could find. Because if you hear someone go, oh, well, there's a difference between a believer and a disciple. One, both are justified. One's walking in sanctification, though. You go, oh, it kind of sounds right, actually. And you don't even research. Acts 18, uh, verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed, uh, went on to Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Just the devoted followers and students of the Messiah? Or is that the church? When he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome, I think this is Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila write a, a letter to, uh, I want to say, Corinth, because Apollos is in Ephesus, I believe, and uh, he writes to the disciples to welcome him. Disciple seems to be so far synonymous with believer. It's not like another level of a believer. It's not like, well, I'm only a level one believer. Uh, I, don't have any, I don't have any gifts or skills. I need to go fight more battles and get more experience. I want to be a level two believer where I can finally be a disciple. That doesn't seem to be what's happening. Acts 19, 18. Many of those who are now believers came. Guess what they're doing? Confessing and divulging their practices. Oops. Wish we had this one for repentance when we talked about it. We have believers coming of their own initiative after hearing the gospel. No one forced them to do this, but they confess and change the way they live. Giving up old practices. You don't see people coming to know Christ and hanging on to witchcraft. You don't see believers incorporating Jesus into their witchcraft life. Well, oh, I'm just going to continue living in sin because you know grace. You said I'm saved. You know, said I'm a believer. You said I'm, all my sins are forgiven. You don't see that, man. You have people like who practice magic arts going, I need to stop this. This is like Nineveh. They're receiving the message. God's judgment is coming. Receive the free gift of salvation from him. And they change the way they live. They change the way they live. 
But these are just believers, right? They're not devoted. Uh, really? They're not devoted? People giving up their entire lifestyle and possibly income, the way they've, all, all that they've known of life is magic arts and books, and they burn it all. If that's not devotion, I don't know what is. That's straight up devotion, man. They're called believers though, so you know, they're not that devoted. You see how silly this gets? Acts chapter 20, verse 29, man. I know that after my departure, this is Paul addressing the believing elders in Ephesus of the church. Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock from among your own selves. Men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. Why are disciples vulnerable? Aren't they like super dedicated and devoted and students and they're versed in the scripture so they should recognize and discern? This is just referring to the believers. That among the believers, even among the people whom Paul is talking to, he knows some of you are going to be wolves. Which is like what Jesus says to Judas. One of you is going to betray me. Acts chapter 21 verse 4. It says, Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, don't go on to Jerusalem. He landed at Tyre. I love that there's disciples at Tyre. That's a game changer when you read the Old Testament. 21.16. Some of the disciples from Caesarea. Only the devoted followers, right? They went with us, bringing us to the house of what a name that is. Is the M silent or is the N silent? Is it Mason, Nason, or Manason? Complicated. This teacher must have had a field day with that one. Went to the house of Manason, an early disciple. An early disciple. Hmm. So, uh, you can read. I'm going to give you guys some homework. Believer is used in 2 Corinthians 6.15. So far, just in the book of Acts. Would you say that believers are distinct from disciples of Jesus? Or that a believer is a disciple of Jesus? This is just the language they use. This isn't even contextually what they're doing. We're just looking at the language used of them. 2 Corinthians 6.15 talks about how believers don't have a portion with unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14.22, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.6-7 um, talks about how the church in Thessalonica became an example to all the believers. And so you can, you can take those scriptures and go, these are only talking about, this is the church, the believers. Yeah, but in Acts, there's no, there's no distinction. This doesn't mean, oh, you have to be this devoted to be an effectual, real, legitimate believer. This is just saying, as a believer, to believe the gospel is to, by definition, as faith is defined in Scripture, believing loyalty. You are believing, you are loyal to Jesus as your only sacrifice, as your only form of righteousness, as your only king. How that's fleshed out in your life and to what degree that happens is not the question. The degree of allegiance, the degree of loyalty is not the question. It is the fact that you are a, a follower of Jesus, which effectively means that faith will result in practice. Faith is never without action, and we'll see that. 1 Thessalonians 2.10, it says that they are good in their conduct toward believers. 
or Paul's talking about how his conduct toward believers was good. First Thessalonians, First Timothy 4.12, he tells Timothy, don't let uh, anyone despise you for your youth. Set the believers an example in speech. First Timothy 6.2, those who have believing masters must not be res- disrespectful, um, but actually benefit them since they're believers and beloved. And First Peter 1.20 through 21, it says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, Jesus, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who are believers. Believers. So in those one, two, three, four, five, six, seven instances, the word believer is used to refer to the church or someone who is, has trusted in Christ. That does not mean that they're not disciples. Just the, the choice of words that the biblical authors used is to, to emphasize something else, to fit into what they're saying at the fact that they believe. It, it's like the same way as saying, um, I'm trying to think. I don't know, when I, when I call my dad my dad and when I call my father, those aren't two different titles necessarily, they're the same thing. Maybe in some sense, the way I relate to each of those terms can emphasize something different, but they're the same thing. Hey dad. Hey, Father, same thing. Hey, believer. Hey, disciple. They, they seem to be synonymous terms. And that frustrates people because they want to know how devoted do I have to be. If you're looking for a how much do I have to or how far do I have to go or what's the bare minimum I have to do, you misunderstand the gospel. It's not about what you can do. It's not about what faith uh, needs in addition. I need work. So it's not about you evidencing and and validating yourself and making sure I really believe. That's not what this is about. This is just to say again, um, that the nature of faith is that when you believe you are a disciple, Matthew 10 42 talks about how, um, well, let's go there. Jesus says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Now what's interesting is you have people, crowds, who are referred to as followers of Jesus, but there's a shallow connection to Christ because eventually in John 6, they do walk away when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, we, nope, we're done. <laughs> you just, we're, we're gone. It says, the one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's righteous. It's essentially the same, the same thing. How you treat those who are mine and they are called disciples. No, no degree of, no uh, amount of maturity involved. No, just, just disciple. Matthew 27, 57. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea. He's a disciple, a follower of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Well, that's real loyalty. Yeah, it is. It doesn't mean he's distinct from believers who are not that bold to do that. Luke 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher. Everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. To belong to Christ and to believe is to assume you're being trained. In some degree, in some capacity, at some speed, at some pace, you're being trained. But a disciple is not above his master or his teacher. Luke 14, if anyone doesn't come to me, if anyone comes to me, 
Now, for some reason, uh, some of the free-graced extremist individuals will, will say, there's a difference between coming to Jesus in John 6, which is to believe, and there's a difference between coming to Jesus and coming after Jesus. So they'll say, coming after Jesus is discipleship. Coming to Jesus is justification. If anyone comes to me, so I'll work with your logic and I'll use the language you use. If anyone comes to me, Jesus said, which you would say, according to John 6, is believing, eating his flesh, coming to eat the bread of life or drink from the true water of life. Either way, you're coming to him. Come to me, all who are weary. That's not discipleship, that's salvation. Okay, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. What seems to be assumed within faith is an ultimate preference of Christ as my everything. You grow in that, you become more aware of that, you understand what that means, but when you believe in Jesus, you're saying, you're my only righteousness. You're my only salvation. I don't have anything else but you. I prefer you above all else. Jesus, and you can say, well, this is about being a disciple, a follower. Well, the coming, you have to change your logic then. You have to change your logic. And then you got to play word games and somehow make this about not a believer. This is a believer who's devoted. If anyone comes to me. And the hatred here is a preferential. It's the way Romans 9 says, God, Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. He preferred to choose or to use Jacob instead of Esau. It's a preferential uh, loyalty. If I ever had to choose between my king and anyone else, even those closest to me, my loyalty to him or doing what they want, faith is loyalty. There's no way around it. Believing loyalty. He's my only sacrifice. He's my only king. He's my only salvation and righteousness. He's my only stronghold. Do I always live like that? Not necessarily. But it's the presence of faith that admits he is only. He's not one among many. He's not one among many gods. I think this crushes the idea of some free grace extremists will say, well, you can believe in Jesus and also be devoted to other gods. How have we gotten here, man? How did we get here? Luke 14, 33, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So to follow Jesus effectively will involve some degree of giving something up, period. John 9, 28, the Jewish leaders make fun of uh, this, I think it's a blind man that got healed in John 9. Yeah, he used to be blind. And they go, and, and he's talking to the Jewish leaders, right? And they're going, how did that man, Jesus, open your eyes? How, how, how? And he goes, I, 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 I told you. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciple? Now, pause. This blind man has no idea who healed him. He didn't see him. Jesus said, go wash. And he did. They don't, he doesn't even know who it is. That's why Jesus is going to come. Do you, do you believe in the Son of Man? He goes, who is he? So I can believe in him. And Jesus goes, me. I'm the guy. 
So this man just got healed, is now, you know, under in, in intense evaluation by the Jewish leaders. And he's going, do you also want to be his disciples? Oh, hold on, pause. Doesn't that mean he's decided he's a disciple of the man who healed him? I don't know. They reviled him and said, You're, you are his disciple? <laughs> we are disciples of Moses. We're disciples of Moses. Interesting. So they've devoted themselves to the teachings of Moses, the law of Moses, as if to make Moses ultimate. And the problem is, according to John chapter 5, they trust in Moses, the law of Moses, which actually condemns them. They're looking to that for salvation when in fact they should find Jesus and they're denying him. And Jesus will say, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. So these guys claim allegiance to Moses. They're loyal to Moses. They're devoted to following Moses. John 15, 8, or John 13, 35, we'll go here. By this, watch this, by this, all people will know. Will know you are my disciples. If you have love. Love. For one another. That's why First John is so important in this conversation. Super important. The presence of love in a person's heart and life. For God and for people. So Jesus apparently is making it obviously clear. That a disciple ought to be recognizable. Or I'll say it like this. Someone who is a follower of Jesus can and should be recognized as such. Oh, you believe in him. Oh, you follow him. Oh, you're devoted to the Bible. Oh, you believe that old dusty book. The presence of love seems to be one of the strongest signs or evidences, not just to the world, but in general, that someone is a disciple of Jesus. By this. By what? Love. You go to John 15, 8. Jesus says to the disciples in the upper room, Hey, by this my Father is glorified. What glorifies God? That you bear much fruit. And prove to be my disciples. We talked about the fruit. We talked about the no fruit. We talked about the much fruit. Disciples here seem to be those who eventually have what is called much fruit, which glorifies the Father. And he'll go on to talk about the fruit he mainly has in mind. The love that the Father has for the Son. The love the Son has for the Father and the Son and the Father have for the people. That love is exactly what Jesus said in John 13 is the mark of a disciple. It's not love and then you become my disciple. It's because you're my disciple you'll love. It's because you're my disciple you'll bear fruit, which the fruit of the Spirit, the first thing listed in Galatians 5 as the fruit of the Spirit is love. In John 8, 31, I know we're like zooming through this, but I got places to be when it comes to these notes. So I'm on page 6 of 15. John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, and we've already talked about this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Interesting. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. To be a disciple, by definition, is to be set free from what? 
from the sin they're enslaved to right here in 34 through 38. In other words, if you are set free from sin now because you've believed in the Messiah and you've come to know and understand the truth, you are by definition a disciple. And if a disciple, then the word you've come to believe will abide or remain or stay or continue in you. It's a lasting effect. No way around it. John 8, 31. And you go, quite the stretch, quite the stretch. 2 John 1, 9 through 10 says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ doesn't have God. Essentially, you are either an, an unbeliever or a disciple. These seem to be your two categories. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. See the abiding, continuing, enduring, lasting nature of faith. I'm not working to continue it. I'm not straining and stressing to make it sustained. It's that once I believe, what God does with that is he sets into motion something called the beautiful salvation package that is guaranteed to finish in glorification and, and, and full redemption of our bodies. He ensures that. Part of that promise and the guarantee of God and you know maintaining that by his grace is that there's a continuing in the teaching of Christ so you either abide or you don't abide you're either a believer or an unbeliever you're either a disciple or you don't belong to God or have him let me show you a few scriptures that for me make it abundantly clear that faith is never without fruit. Faith is never without fruit. Eventually. Fruit. Fruit takes time. I'm not denying that. I'm, I'm not denying the fact that there's variance in fruit. There's variety in fruit. There's degrees of fruitfulness. There's seasons of fruitfulness. But fruit eventually will always accompany faith. Otherwise, that seed was ineffective. And I don't think God's word fails. He says that his word will never return void. Either it further locks someone into further condemnation because they disbelieve and they reject it, or it produces in them a fruitful harvest, which faith will always bear fruit. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 14, it says, You know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted you, each one of you. We encouraged you. We charged you. Hey, walk in a manner worthy of God. Okay, now you go, well, this is... Uh, not required, this is not guaranteed, this is not for sure going to happen in the life of every believer, this is just optional and you should. There's a difference between you should and you will, or you should and you have to. Okay. So Paul exhorts and encourages the people of God, hey, walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We also thank God constantly for this. When you received... Watch, when you received the word of God, remember the word of God is never, uh, what's it called, uh, uselessly planted, okay? It either furthers the hardening or it brings someone out of unbelief. When you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, okay? So here's the hearing, you, they received it, then they also accepted it, Okay, so the receiving requires the hearing, which turns into accepting, and they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. 
Now watch. That word that was received, heard, accepted is at work. In disciples, because, uh, you know, the free grace extremists will say, well, the word of God being put to work in an individual's life means they're a disciple, they're devoted, they're being sanctified. Apparently, believers are assumed to have the work of the gospel being produced in their life. Meaning, to receive the gospel is that eventually, that faith will produce good work in believers, not just disciples, to use the language of free grace individual. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We're barely getting started this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. Paul says, look, we thank God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in, my, in our prayers, remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith, your labor of love. What is the main evidence biggest, strongest evidence of someone being a disciple of Jesus and having true faith, like it's love and a steadfastness of hope. So here we have all three of those elements present, the enduring nature of faith, steadfastness, the love and the fruit that's present, the main evidence, and then the fact that faith produces a kind of good work. So this is not add my works to faith to complete my salvation. This is not validate my faith and look for enough works in my life to know I'm really God's. And I can really take him at his word once I see enough works. This is, hey, Paul's remembering the works they did, their hard work, their labor of love, which is a result of their faith. Which tells me that assumed within faith is that there will always be a kind of work produced from it. Not to validate, not to sustain, not to keep, not to maintain, but for the simple fact that things produce after their own kind. Seed produces after its own kind. Luke eleven twenty eight. This is just a fun one. This lady raises her voice and goes, Man, this guy's awesome. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Don't get weird, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Did he rebuke her? No, he just clarified. To be blessed is not just to hear, but to keep. This is eventually what faith results in. Saving faith when you believe. That word abides in you. It is kept. It is continued. It's sustained. Okay? So I, I think I've made it clear enough that to be a disciple is to be a believer. To be a believer is to be a disciple. Specifically a disciple of Jesus. Because you can be a disciple of something else, some other whatever in the world, and not believe in Jesus. So I, I specifically mean... To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a believer and vice versa. Okay. Now, let me show you, continuing on that idea, that faith and the lifestyle can't be disconnected. I've said this over and over. You need to hear this. 
not just on a biblical level, but even on a, like a, a human reasoning, philosophical truth level that's like widely accepted. This is general knowledge. Everyone is living out their beliefs. Your beliefs drive your life. What you are convinced is true. What you are truly convinced is reality and true. You live according to that. Belief and lifestyle are inextricably connected. You need to understand this. This is a premise for what faith is. And I'm not looking for the culture and the world to tell me this so I can read that into scripture. Scripture reinforces this. Everyone lives out what they truly believe. Perfectly? No. All the time? Consistently? With no failure? No. But what I truly believe in this given moment or in this given day or, or for my life, what I believe, you live out. There's no escape in that. Every occurrence of someone who believes has something done, an action that's taken as proof of the inward reality of faith or trust. Even if it's not saving faith in nature and it's just like, I believe God will do this or I believe God will destroy the army or I believe, like just, I just wrote a few, a few examples down because we could spend a long time on this. Abraham in Genesis 15, he believed God prior to that, prior to Genesis 15, but he lays down Isaac because he believed God could raise him back from the dead. So Abraham believed God is faithful, he's loyal, he can raise my son back from the dead. And Romans will say, yeah, he technically did, or Hebrews, right? He technically did receive him back. Maybe it is Romans. So he did what his faith believed for. Exodus 14, 31, right? Uh, you have the people bowing their heads and worshiping as they prove, as proof they, they have some kind of uh, belief about or belief in or belief for something. Jonah 3, 5 through 10, Nineveh does something because they believe. They turn from sin. They stop doing what they're doing. They put on sackcloth. They put ashes on their head and they mourn. They wept. They did something to express faith. Matthew 8, 13, the centurion left after Jesus said, hey, your servant's healed. He left because he believed. He took action. The woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, what'd she do? Does the text just say, yeah, she believed Jesus could heal her? Or did she reach out and do something about it? Because her faith moved her. Her faith moved her. She acted on her faith. Matthew 3, 6. Just, in the, just when it comes to John baptizing, before Jesus is on the scene. You have all the people who believe in the coming Messiah. They're coming to John. And they're being baptized in the Jordan River and confessing their sins. Those are things they're doing. And that's not something they're trusting in. They're not believing in that to save. They're not looking at that as validation and, and this is where my security is. They're just doing something because they believe. The faith in action, I, I don't, there's like no legitimate way to disconnect the lifestyle and the belief. Luke 3, 8 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Like if you truly change your mind, do something about it. Like you'll, something will happen, right? It's not on you. John 4, 39 through 41, the Samaritans believed the woman's testimony of Christ and they come to Jesus. John 4, 50 through 53, the man trusted Jesus to heal his son. How about Rahab believing in God and Israel and she actually hid the spies? Or Acts 2, the new believers do something because they believe you can go on and on and on. So no one disagrees that faith is seen in action through our life. Well, 
I guess that's why I'm making this series, because there are quite a few people, maybe they wouldn't disagree with that statement, but they'd say, they pry a little deeper and go, oh, what do you mean? So I guess some people do, I feel the sneeze coming on. Just, you know, and you're like, just come out already. Okay, Luke chapter four. Jesus does something very interesting. Very interesting. Which we'll get to in a moment after this commercial break. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this, if you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Oh, look at that. Commercial's done. Luke chapter 4. Speaking of faith in action. Jesus rolls up the scroll that he just read, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. He is currently in Nazareth. Nazareth. He's reading Isaiah, puts the scroll back. Everyone in the synagogue was looking at him. And he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Everyone spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. And, and they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said, I know you guys are going to quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard that you did at Capernaum, do that here. Do that here in your hometown. This is Jesus' hometown. That's why they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But 
In truth, I tell you, there were many widows, widows in Israel. Watch what he's about to do. He's, first of all, he's going to explain, using narrative in the Old Testament, that a prophet is usually not accepted in his hometown, so he's usually sent outside the borders of his, where, he, where he comes from, okay? Also, okay, what he's noting is the fact that his hometown lacks the faith to believe in him because of their close proximity to him. So there's a lack of faith being addressed. There's an issue of him being rejected as a prophet in his own hometown, so he's sent out to go to other people, right? And look at the two stories he uses, okay? There's an inextricable link between lifestyle and works that is going to demonstrate the reality of these two things. Jesus is about to choose two pagan Gentiles, stories, two stories about two pagan Gentiles as examples of faith in the midst of unbelieving Israelites who rejected their God. The first story is about how God sent Elijah to a widow in Zarephath. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Remember, there's no... A prophet is without honor in his own hometown. He's not acceptable in his hometown. That's why Elijah, there were many widows in Israel, but when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. So Israel's under famine. Israel's in unbelief. Israel's in idolatry. Israel is under this, we're hungry and barren and fruitless kind of condition, right? And Elijah was sent to none of them. None of them. Okay, none of who? None of the widows in Israel. There were widows in Israel. He sent to none of them. Why is Jesus saying this? And you're going to see why this aggravates them and they drive him off the cliff to kill him. But he escapes. Now, Elijah, he was sent to a widow in Zarephath, in Sidon. Gentile territory outside of God's pristine chosen territory. He goes to Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So we have a pagan, Gentile, non-Jewish, unchosen widow. And God goes, Elijah, I want you to go to Zarephath. There's a widow there. We can read about the account in 1 Kings 7, 8 through 16. Let me take you there. 1 Kings 17, it says, The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Hey, go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Interesting. How, how is God commanding a widow in Gentile pagan territory to feed his prophet that's coming? So, he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, there was a widow gathering sticks. This isn't for anything good. He called to her and said, hey, can you bring me a little water and a vessel? I'm really thirsty so that I can drink. And as she was going to bring it, so she, she does what he asks, she goes and brings it. He called to her and said, also bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. I'm hungry. She said, as the Lord your God lives. This widow inside in pagan Gentile territory, disconnected from the nation of Israel, she, okay, she um, 
believes in the God of Israel, at least is aware of the God of Israel. So she, she uses that, right? Whether she's devoted or believing, it, God does say, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. How the command came, is this the command? Did this come through before? Okay. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And Well, right now I'm just gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and, and my child. Um, and we're just, we're going to eat and die. Tragic, man. This woman has decided we're going to die, my son and I, so we're just eating one last meal. Imagine that. You have one, this meal isn't going to sustain you. It's just one last thing to do before you die because you have nothing else. Okay? So she, he, she's about to eat the last meal of her and her son's life. And this prophet from the God of Israel says, hey, can I have some food? She's looking at the nothing she already has, which you can't have nothing, but you know what I mean. She has nothing. And he said, don't fear. Go and do what you've said. What did she say? Well, then I'm gathering a couple of sticks to go and prepare the little bread I do have. But he said, first, make me a little cake of it. Bring it to me. Afterward, make something for yourself and your son. After, I, I, I just told you I have one last meal for me and my son. It's not even gonna keep us alive. It's just one last thing to do before we out ourselves or we perish from hunger. And you want me to give you first from what I don't even, what isn't even enough to sustain me and my son? Do you know how hard this would be? Bring me first? I'm not gonna give, who said I'm gonna give you anything? But now you want me to give you it first and then take care of me and my son after you? For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Look at what he does to reassure her with the scriptures or the word of God. This is what God does. He reassures us and our movements of faith. When he calls you to do something, when he asks you to do something, here's what he does. He reinforces it with his faithfulness prior in the past or what he said in his word. So this is what God said, man or woman. The jar of flour won't be spent and the jug of oil will not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. What's he saying? God has sent me to sustain you by his grace. He's going to keep you alive in this famine because there's no food in the land. There's no water. It's barren. It's fruitless. But God will sustain you. That's what God does for his people. Even in the middle of drought and famine and lack and people starving to death, God's going to take care of this one widow. And she went and she did, as Elijah said. She and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty, just like the Lord said through Elijah. So interesting, the, the story Jesus brings up to reinforce the point that a prophet is not accepted in his hometown but essentially is sent to those who have faith. His story is a woman, a pagan Gentile woman outside the territory of Israel under a famine 
without the God of Israel, and yet God commands her to do something for the prophet, and she does it. She does it. Why? Because she believes. Look at the second story. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed. Only name in the Syrian. Them some fighting words, because look, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. That's not like, hey, we're offended, bad guy. This is like, we want to murder you. And I'm thinking of all these dark ways to do it. And they tried to drive him off the cliff. What was so offensive and even blasphemous in their mind about what he's saying? Essentially, he's saying the pagan Gentiles have more faith than the Israelite chosen nation of God. Now, go to 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 10 with me. Not that you have a choice. If you're watching, you get to go with me no matter what. Elisha, okay. Naaman is, a, is, a, is an army commander in the, in the Syrian army. From what I remember. He has leprosy. He finds out that there's a prophet in Israel, Elisha, who comes after Elijah, that he can do something about this leprosy. So Naaman comes with his horses to the door of Elisha's house. Elisha doesn't even give him the time of day. Elisha goes to the, sends a messenger, go talk to Naaman. Naaman's this powerful authority and ruler, especially being a, that Syria, um, is it Syria? Syria's uh, during this time not in good relationship with Israel. But Elisha sends a messenger and says, hey, the messenger tells Naaman, this powerful army commander, Elisha said, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. Naaman was pissed. Just what? Then verse 14, he changes his mind. After fighting and through all the pride and the arrogance, Elisha should have come to me and I could have gone to any other river and what's different about the water here? He, you, know, you know what? Whatever. He goes down and dips himself seven times in the Jordan. Notice this though, it's according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a child. He was clean. The woman in Zarephath is fed. The Syrian army commander is cleansed. Do you see the spiritual dimension of this? The way God spiritually sustains, feeds us. Jesus has come to me. Feed on me, I'll give you the bread of eternal life. I'll cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. These are the two stories Jesus uses. To the people in his hometown, the Israelites, essentially, he's making this point. Y'all don't believe me and who I say I am and who I say I'm from and what I came to do. You don't have faith. Just like God sent the prophets, Elisha and Elijah, to pagan Gentiles who had more faith than the people of Israel in their time. You guys don't have faith. And then Jesus will look at a centurion in Matthew chapter 8 and go, wow, this, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. What's going on, guys? You have the temple, you have the law, you have the commandments, you have the, the priesthood. What's going on? Why am I finding more faith in, in pagan Israelite territory where idolatry is prevalent and there's more faith in the God of Israel than in God's own chosen nation? What's going on? Notice the two things that these stories have in common. The widow responds in faith 
to the word of God. Naaman responds in faith to the word of God, but not just inwardly, they're not just convinced. The faith Jesus is drawing out from these stories and even using to accuse the people in his hometown of not having is a faith that has action. So the second thing they have in common is that Naaman goes down and he washes. He washes. Widow Zarephath cooks her last meal and gives the first part to Elijah because he said God would sustain her. She believes. She believes. Of all the stories Jesus could have used to demonstrate faith that Israel should have, but they don't, and they're missing the Messiah, and they're missing what their scriptures testified of, and they're missing prophecy in front of them. Of all the stories, he chooses two pagan Gentiles whose faith had action. When it comes to good works, when it comes to doing good things for the kingdom, when it comes to serving God, when it comes to sanctification, let's put those two things in two different categories. We have sanctification, the me becoming more like Christ in character, in thought, in word, in deed, and then the good works that are produced. Um, let me talk about that. Sanctification is a process that is in between justification and glorification, and it's guaranteed as we've already seen. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we all, 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 not some, not most, all believers, with unveiled face, the veil's lifted, we see Jesus for who he is, beholding the glory of the Lord, we all are being transformed. What's that, sanctification? John 17, seven? Not just the once for all setting apart sanctification, where we're set apart unto God for holy use, but the being used part of sanctification, we're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. That's talking about the process between being saved and being resurrected and glorified. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So you have the Spirit, you're a believer like us, you're being transformed, it's guaranteed. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, we don't lose heart. Even though our outer self is wasting away this mortal body, our inner self, the truest version of me spiritually in Christ is being renewed day by day. Now, Paul cannot make that statement if it is not a universal truth for all of God's people. Now, the we here, I, I will say he's speaking of, um, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what's been written, I believe and so I spoke, we believe, so we speak. It is all for your sake. Talking about, I believe, his apostleship. Being a, him being a, an earthen vessel with in, you know, priceless uh, gold inside of his mortal body, being the presence of God, right, the Spirit. He's saying we don't lose heart. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So, is he speaking of just himself and the apostles who are suffering for the church? Or is this a universal statement about the we being the people of God? Well, I would say because of the way he says, uh, he says, we are afflicted being the apostles, but we have the same spirit of faith, right? According, as the Corinthians do, who this is written to, 
We believe, just like you guys, I believe the we includes all believers. That is it true that our bodies are wasting away? Is that a universal statement for all of God's people? Yeah. Yeah, you might be getting stronger. You might be working out. You might be losing weight. You might be getting healthier. But at the end of the day, we're all dying. Sorry to put a damper on your day. We're all physically dying. But the beautiful news is what's inside this mortal body is guaranteed absolutely universally for all of God's people being renewed. What's that mean? The renewal sanctification process is guaranteed and is happening for the people of God. Well, is that against my free will? We've already talked about how there are some things God does that doesn't require our participation. It's happening nonetheless. He'll get it done even if I, even if I push against it. It'll get done. But there are some things God says, look, I'll only do this if you participate with me. So Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, look, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, okay, so now, not only as in my presence, much more in my absence, Paul says, work out your own salvation. Work it out. With fear and trembling, it is God who works in you. What? Who's working? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Herein lies this, this, this verse right here. This scripture perfectly sums up the sanctification process and the way God does and we participate and he moves and we're involved and we respond and he supplies and he enables and he empowers and we use and we utilize and we grow. Look at this. God works in you. But you just told me to work out my salvation. It doesn't mean validate yourself and make sure you're saved and the First Corinthians 13, examine yourselves. That's not what it's saying, which I, I disagree with the way people use 1 Corinthians 13 to say, make sure you're saved. I don't believe that's what it's saying. But Paul is saying, work out, use, exercise the salvation you have. Bring that out. It's a call on the believer to use what they have, to work out the salvation that's present in them. And then the usually the pushback here is, ah, since it is a decision and an option, believers aren't guaranteed to work out their salvation. Here's why I disagree. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Not only do I have the command, not only do I have the reason, being the love of God for us in Christ, but I have the actual desire and nature to want to do and want to work the good he's designed me for in Ephesians chapter two. You see it? Thank you for that gift, Auntie Ardra. I think I said your name right. Very much appreciated. Huge blessing, thank you. You see it? Like This is not, hey, disconnect yourself from God and go strive and go aim for, and go and work, and go strain, and go plan, and go put your vision board together. This is, hey, God actually has created you, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He's created you in Christ Jesus for good works. You are recreated, regenerated, born again, formatted to do the good works he's designed you for. 
you're now spiritually capable and empowered to actually go and do what he wants to do through you. So it's not just me working, it's that now I'm capable of working, but God is the one who effectively makes that possible by giving me a new nature and a new heart and new desires and a new life and a new nature, all that. He works in me. So this is not you go do, this is God through you, partnering with you, intends to do great things through your life and with your participation. But work out your own salvation. It is both a choice. There are some things I can choose to miss out on. Let me say it like this. If, if there was a measurement, let's say this, this pen, the length of this pen, this is a stupid analogy, but go with me. This represents the full measure of what God wants to do in my life, okay? And let's just say, since this is not guaranteed, this is what God wants, the full measure of it, there is both the potential and the actualization, meaning this is potentially what I could do. But free will gets involved, flesh gets involved, culture gets involved, Fears get involved, and it's, ah, uh, I don't do everything he called me to. But I do believe, based on everything we've seen in Scripture, there is at least guaranteed this amount's going to happen, or this amount. It varies with the person and their role and, and all that. There is a degree to which God guarantees he will work in you, through you, around you, even without your efforts sometimes, to accomplish and make the salvation, the sanctification process what it is. So even though you meet, don't meet the full potential of what you could do, there is at least a bare minimum of what God will do in the lives of every believer, even if they don't participate or do anything else. And I believe it varies with every believer and their gifts and their experience and their role and their part in the body and all that. So instead of saying, well, what's the bare minimum for every universally for every believer? That's a silly question because we serve a God of diversity. And so it's going to vary. But I do believe the whole point here is you have a choice to live out your full potential of what God's called you to. You have a choice to do everything God's designed you to do in Christ, everything you're capable of doing, but that doesn't guarantee you will because of the fact that God works in me both to will and to work though, I do believe that there is a measure of what God has guaranteed he will do in my life. Even if I sit back and do nothing about it, he will accomplish a work. He will accomplish a work. And that's not to the violation of your free will or to the neglect of your free will. That is perfectly in line with you saying, I believe in the gospel. And God goes, okay, cool. I'm going to respond to that with what you don't even know to ask for. So guess what? It's participation. The free grace individual goes, it's all God, it's all God, it's all God. And that is, salvation is all God, all God. But then they go, sanctification is all God. Transformation is all God. We'll pause on that. Hold on. Lordship individual goes, Essentially, they won't say this with their lips, but the theology and the way they frame it up, it's like, it's all you. It's all you. But yeah, God be glorified. It's by his grace. He's helping you. Whereas I'm like, ah, guys, it's not just God and it's not just you. It's there are some things God don't need your help to do. Okay. 
you disobeying him doesn't totally ruin the salvation plan. I, I can't redeem the world now because Nancy didn't talk to her neighbor. That's not how this works. God's going to move his plan forward and do what he wants. He who sits in the heavens does what he pleases. And by the way, it's also on the earth he does what he pleases. Okay, so in that sense, the free grace individual is right. God does what he wants, but to make sanctification and the good works in my life all God and no, none of my participation, none of my free will, none of my... This is, this is the balance, okay? Is that God makes possible. God makes available. God empowers. God supplies. God makes all provision necessary so that Second Peter says we have everything we need to live a life of godliness. There's nothing you lack. It's all on the table. God has fully stocked and supplied you. It's all there. It's all there. But I'm not guaranteed to reach out for that and actually utilize all that he's made available. But on the other side, there is still guaranteed God will do something within my life. God has always been about partnering. Partnering. Do you understand? Like, it is a partnership. You don't limit God, and God's not restricted to your ability or free will or gifts or decision to follow Him. He can do whatever He wants. But there are some things God says, I will do this if you partner with me and make yourself available as a usable vessel. So it's not all on me. It's all enabled by God, but it's also not all on him because he will choose to use a vessel that makes themselves available. And if you don't, well, then that good work does not get done. Ephesians 4.17 actually talks about how we should walk as believers. It says, look, this I say and testify in the Lord, that no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Their minds are futile, useless, vain. They're darkened in their understanding. Like if you opened up their spiritual mind and their spiritual sight, you'd see utter darkness. They're blind. They're separated from the life of God. They're hard of heart. They're callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, impurity. We, talk, we have talked about this over and over and over. Why is it that the presence of unbelief is always attached to a life of sin? And then why would we turn around and go, well, a believer, though, can still have all of that same sin. Because someone's going to read this and go, well, you're not guaranteed not to walk as the Gentiles do. Paul's just telling you. If he's telling you, that means you won't automatically. That means you're not guaranteed to. That means it's a possibility you won't. The whole point of this is to say, look, there is a way we should walk. That's all I'm going to say about this text, at least, is there's a way we should live. It's not like the Gentiles. You have to ask yourself, why? You have to ask yourself why. Why is it that there's an expected way a believer should live? Why is it there's an expected way an unbeliever is going to live? Why is that? Titus 2, 11 through 14. It says, The grace 
of God. Now, now here, this, let me address you free grace individuals. Okay, listen. The way you define grace, you might think is so biblical, but as far as I'm concerned, it's an absolute perversion of what grace is actually supposed to be. And I say that lovingly. The, the free grace extremist, rather. The ones who will say hy hypothetically, you know, even if someone gave themselves over to Satan and worship, but they believed when they were six, and the they hate the hypotheticals, but they still, even if you say, well, hypothetically, if that happened, wouldn't that person still be saved in your theology? They'd go, yes, yeah, yeah. They, they want to talk around it. They want to get away from that hypothetical, and yet it's still something that they believe, that if that hypothetical Jimmy, who raised his hand at, at six years old and said, I believe in Sunday school, and then he murdered people the rest of his life, gave himself over to Satanism, was an atheist, pushed against God, hated his church, hated God. He's still a believer. He's still a child of God. He didn't lose his salvation. We don't believe that. We believe we're eternally secure. But his faith was genuine, you know, when he was six. And even though his life doesn't testify of that, it's still genuine belief and trust in Jesus as Messiah and as the only way to be righteous. Therefore, grace lacks the empowerment to live different. Let me say it to you like this. It seems to be within the free grace extremist side of things. Grace is so hyper-focused on in relation to salvation. Where it's like, we're saved by grace. We're, we're saved by grace. Absolutely, man. No one's saying your salvation is something you worked for. No one's saying you maintain it. No one's saying you earned it. No one's saying you worked for it. Some people do. I'm not talking about them. No one in this camp, in this theology, is saying that you earn or work for or achieve salvation or got to keep it and sustain it by your works. No one's saying that. Grace is a gift by definition. It's free. It's undeserved. It's unearned. But they always look at it in relationship with being saved. It's like you're saved by grace alone, justified by grace alone. It's through faith alone. That's what makes it grace. And they hyper-focus on that to the neglect of the fact that the same grace that saves you as a gift is the same gift that empowers you and guarantees you'll live different. You'll live different. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, namely in Jesus, bringing salvation. That's the point they love, and I agree. That's what makes our faith so unique and our, and our relationship with God so unique and, and the gospel so unique is salvation is by a free grace. It's a gift. There's no such thing as costly grace for us. It's not cheap. It's not expensive. It costs Jesus' life. It's free to us. It's a gift. Salvation has appeared. Bring in the gift of salvation. Look at what else grace does. Doesn't just save the same gift that justifies is the same grace gift that sanctifies. The grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of Jesus. He's coming. Are you ready? He's coming, and he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. 
So look at what look at what God does. He gives his son. He redeems us from the penalty of sin. He purifies us positionally so that we're righteous and holy and perfect and blameless. And we have the exact identity of Christ covering us. Why did he do that? So that this people who is holy and blameless and righteous in the sight of God through faith by grace alone. By the same grace that saved them. End up being zealous for good works. The same grace that saved you is the same grace if it's effectively at work in your life and you've really come to believe will train you to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions. This is living different. This training to live different in some measure and in some dimension and capacity is guaranteed if the grace of God is truly at work in your life and has saved and has given you the gift of salvation and justification and righteousness, if that grace is at work in your life and there's really true saving faith present in you, you will see this. You will see this. Stop asking how much, stop asking when, Stop asking to what degree and stop looking for it and keep looking to him as he trains you to do things you don't even know you were trained to do when you get to the situation. The interesting thing about God's training is you don't always know you're even in training when you're sitting at his feet. The interesting thing about God's training is you don't even know you're preparing for a situation that you're going to be ready for just by sitting at his feet, just by spending time in the scriptures, just by spending time in prayer. You don't even know you're ready for a situation until you get there and realize, oh, he trained me for this. If you see none of this, which I would say Hebrews, the chastening of God, the discipline. We always think of discipline as correction, don't we? Discipline is not always correction and consequential. Discipline is training. And yes, that includes uh, exposing the wrong things, but training also emphasizes the right things. When I'm training someone for whatever, I'm not just going to tell them what they're doing wrong and keep correcting. I'm going to continue saying or affirming the good they're doing. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. Hey, let's not do that. Training is not always a consequence for sin. Discipline is not always a consequence for sin. That is the presupposition people bring to the text of James chapter 2. So guess what? The grace of God guarantees to train his people just as much as it saved you. I could feel it in the air. It's quiet. 1 Timothy 2.10 talks about how the holy women, daughters of God, uh, should adorn themselves. They should adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness. There's a proper way of life for those who claim to know or belong to God in faith. Well, with good works. I don't want to spend too much time on that. 
just what's proper, not just for women, but for the church, what's proper is that we would do the good works we've been called to. Titus 3.8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Let me, let me pause. When you limit grace to salvation, you really, you really rob grace of its full power. Meaning, if you're going, this grace saves, and then it stops there, and it's not effective to accomplish a transforming work in your life guaranteed by His Spirit and the new nature you have, you have really downplayed the grace of God. You've really downplayed and minimized and made the grace of God almost out to be somewhat of a joke. Like, hey, he's strong enough to save and it's a free gift. He ain't strong enough to change my life, guaranteed. Really? Really? Don't, don't you dare rob the grace of God of its actual power, not just to save, but to transform. Titus 3.8 says, The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed, believers, in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. Now, typically when people address James 2, they want to bring this verse into play. And they go, these things are excellent and profitable. So good works are only profitable for people. Matthew 5.16 says, hey, let your light shine. How? Well, through your good works. Because then people glorify your God who is in heaven. Let your light shine. Let the good works God has trained you and prepared you and created you for be done in your life. I am not going to address James 2 today. Because to be honest, I'm not entirely sure yet where I stand with that. And the cool thing is, I don't need James 2. Like, I, that's not like, oh, my, everything I've said hangs on that. You can take James 2, free grace individuals, you can take that. You can make it say what, what, what you believe it says. That doesn't take away from anything. Notice how I have not addressed James 2 at all. That's because I didn't want any of this to be built on James 2. Because they do such a good job of bringing that toppling right down. And guess what? I don't need it. I did that on purpose. I think. We're going to end, and I'm going to show you that there is a life of a believer versus the life of an unbeliever. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12 through 12, says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power, false signs, and false wonders. Okay. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Okay. So who are the people who are deceived by Satan? Well, those who are perishing. They refuse to love the truth and be saved. Can we agree? Can we agree that those who are perishing refused to love the truth, rejected the gospel, rebelled, and so they're not saved? Saved from what? This is spiritual salvation, man, from sin, from eternal death. They're perishing. They've been deceived by the enemy. Can we agree that these are unbelievers? If you think, if you're in such delusion 
that verse 9 and 10 for you is describing a believer, I honestly don't know what to do for you because I can't. I, I, I can't. <laughs> Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. In order that all may be condemned. So who are the people who didn't love the truth, who are perishing, who aren't saved? They're condemned. But Romans 8 says there's therefore no condemnation for those who believe in Christ. Can't be a believer. Who did not believe the truth. Hmm. Notice what not believing the truth is defined as. They didn't believe the truth, which means they had pleasure in unrighteousness. The two ideas that are contrasted here very clearly in verse 12 is that there is one who believes, there is one who does not. The one who believes does not have pleasure in unrighteousness. The one who doesn't believe has pleasure in unrighteousness. You think I added to the text by saying that. No, logically, think with me. If they didn't believe in the truth, right? Because they had pleasure in unrighteousness, then unbelief and living in sin, taking pleasure in unrighteousness, go together. This is the reason they did not believe the truth. Therefore, the people who do believe will not have pleasure in unrighteousness because the person who didn't believe the truth or the person who would have believed is contrasted with the person who has pleasure and doesn't believe is perishing, refuse to love the truth and be saved. In other words, I'm trying to show you that the wicked lifestyle of living in sin is always attached to unbelief. Like not being saved to be very clear, because some free grace extremist individuals believe that you can believe and then live in unbelief the rest of your life. So I need to qualify that. Titus 1, 15 through 16, to the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Can, can we agree we're talking about an unbeliever? Someone who doesn't know God, someone who's condemned under their sin, they're separated from God, they're defiled, they're unbelieving, okay? Now watch. These unbelievers rejected the truth, don't know Christ. They profess to know God. Ho. Oh. Oh, Ho, hold on. But they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, this is typically how James 2 gets framed up. You can be fit for good works, be obedient, and be a believer, or you can be a believer and disobedient, unfit for good works. Um, not do the good ones to do God ever wants to do through your life, ever. Look at the way the unbelievers described, defiled. Their minds and consciences are defiled as well, contrasted with the pure. These defiled, unbelieving, condemned individuals, man, they, they claim to know God. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Lord, Lord, come on. You know me. I don't know you. Come on, we, we cast out demons. You were there. I don't know you. 
We prophesied. We even that. We did all these things. I, I don't know you. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works or their life. Let me ask you something. If someone told you, I believe in Jesus, whatever that means, and you even gave them the gospel and they like, they nod, they agree. They're like, yes, I'm convinced, I believe, I agree, okay? And then you, the whole, let's say you could just, for the rest of their life, you could, you could see it all unfolded right there in a microsecond. You'd see absolute detestable wickedness and murder and Satan worship and I'm, I'm thinking like the worst life possible. And then you look at the life, but you look at their confession, which one would be more convincing to you? Which one speaks louder? What they said they believed or what they lived out? Because everyone lives out their beliefs. Now we'll get to Matthew 7 to explain the self-righteous heart behind these people. But these individuals, they're detestable, living in sin, denying God by their works. Why add that if works are irrelevant to validating genuine faith? Can I say that again? Why, why bring in the concept of denying Jesus with their life if the lifestyle is irrelevant when it comes to knowing whether I have genuine faith or not? If the lifestyle is irrelevant to, to whether or not true faith is present. If those ideas don't even relate, why bring it up? The unbeliever here doesn't, he claims to know God. How does Paul know they don't? Because their life says otherwise. They're detestable, disobedient, mainly to the gospel of Jesus. They've refused to believe, and that's the core issue. But that doesn't mean the lifestyle is a non-issue. Because this is what the free grace extremist individual, I say extremist on purpose because I don't want to lump every free grace individual into one category. There is extreme views within this. The free grace extremist will come out and say, you know, they're disobeying the gospel. That's the issue. Oh, okay. Unbelief is the main issue. That doesn't mean the lifestyle is a non-issue and it's unrelated. Why is unbelief and a rejection of Jesus with the life, why do those two ideas always go together? And why would we expect that true genuine faith can accompany what is expected to go with unbelief? Those two things go together. If, if sin and unbelief go together, that's the, that's the expected lifestyle of an unbeliever. Why would I then go, well, faith can also have a lifestyle of sin. Those, those two things don't go together. Those don't match at all. At all. People don't like this. 2 Timothy 2. Is it convincing? The whole concept of knowing them by their fruit is a dangerous statement to make because Matthew 7 is talking about the confession someone makes as relates Jesus and it's talking about someone you should listen to and someone you should avoid and, and all the stuff that goes around in that but at the end of the day this is not giving you permission to be a fruit inspector I think the horse is dead good job well I'm going to resuscitate it only to beat it back to death again uh, because we're nowhere near done 
2 Timothy 2, 16 says, avoid irreverent babble. It will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Ungodliness is the issue. Isn't it? And their talk will spread like gangrene. I don't know if that Mitchell is serious or, or, or joking, but I was joking. Among them are Hymenaeus Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Watch this. God's firm foundation stands. This is very important. God's firm foundation stands. People can claim what they want. People can do what they want. People can say and believe what they want. But God's foundation still stands. Bearing this seal. Watch. The Lord knows those who are his. Because don't some people profess to know, but they don't live like they know? And so the life of denying, notice how like it's not denying people, it's not denying Jesus just with the heart or just with the lips. But Titus says they deny him by their works. What does that mean? That you can deny Jesus with your life. Which validates the unbelief that is present in you as much as you profess to know him. Think about that. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord, in other words, who professes to know God, who actually is belonging to God, depart from iniquity. This doesn't say repent. It doesn't say confess. I'm saying the language used is a leaving, a forsaking, a turning my back to and moving on from it. Why, why is ungodliness the result of twisting the truth and irreverent babble? Why is ungodliness linked to falsehood and unbelief? And why is it that faith in Jesus and truly belonging to him through faith is connected to leaving and departing from iniquity? Why? Why, why, why? In Jonah chapter 3, you don't forget Jonah. Not like Jonah the prophet, but I'm not going to go there yet. Matthew 7. This is along the lines of what we're saying. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of the Father. John 6 says that's believing. Okay, So this tells me that these people at least who are saying, Lord, Lord, we profess to know you. They didn't truly believe. They had a false confession. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we boom, 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 listen off, spiritual, miraculous, supernatural, stupid, crazy stuff, prophecy, cast out demons, mighty works. Jesus is like, are you done listing off all, all the stuff you did? I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. So we know they don't believe. We know they trust in their self-righteousness. We know they rest in their own works and ability. But look at what also accompanies both unbelief and self-righteousness and a false confession. What accompanies that? They work lawlessness. Not only did they not do the will of the Father, which is to believe, they lived in sin and had moments of supernatural spiritual activities. So notice the four things that mark these people. They profess to know God. Right? They trust in their works 
to get them into the kingdom of God. They trust in their efforts, their morality, their good deeds, their supernatural experiences. They trust in something other than Jesus. Okay? They don't believe in the gospel. Jesus says they, he doesn't know them. And they work lawlessness. Oof. They work lawlessness. They live in sin. To say the lifestyle is irrelevant and is a non-issue just because the lifestyle and the action don't earn salvation, that's a silly conclusion to come to. Well, this doesn't earn salvation, so it's a non-issue. What? What? When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He'll sit on His glorious throne. For those that are asking, show me Jesus is God. Why is Jesus sitting on a glorious throne being the judge of all? Truth doesn't run. Let me encourage you. Uh, you sound like you, maybe, maybe you're here not to cause issues and you're genuinely curious. Go watch my four and a half hour episode proving from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is God. Over 55 reasons that the scriptures teach. 55. Truth doesn't run. I don't know your name, but listen to me. 55 reasons. Jesus is clearly and explicitly God in scripture. 55. Have fun with that. Just Google above reproach ministry, YouTube above reproach ministry. 55 reasons Jesus is God. You can be hung up on one verse all day. Have fun with that. Matthew 25, Jesus is sitting on the glorious throne. He's gathered all the nations before him. He has the authority to gather. He has the authority to separate. Watch what he does. He places the sheep on his right. He places the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 55 biblical reasons. Every reason has more than one scripture, my friend. So you're probably looking at over 110 passages in scripture. Have fun. I'm done talking about that. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we do these things? He'll go, well, when you did it to them, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. What is he gonna go on listing? You didn't do these things. Is Jesus therefore saying, you didn't do this, therefore you're not saved? Or is he saying, because you didn't believe and were under a curse, this, as a result, is validation of that. Notice how the righteous are rewarded for the good they did. It doesn't earn salvation. It doesn't add to Christ. Whereas the wicked, the cursed, are punished, penalized for the wrong they did. Or the right they didn't do. In other words, there's only condemnation but it involves the evaluation of the life. Not to, know, not to say, again, we've, I don't need to go through that again. Jonah 3, 
6 through 10. The prophet Jonah comes preaching a fire message. Like literally, it's just all about fire. God's going to bring fire down. The king of Nineveh heard, and he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and he published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, hey, let neither man or beast eat anything. Don't drink water. Everyone cover yourself with sackcloth. Call out to God, the God of Israel. Let everyone turn from his evil way. Stop the violence in his hands, right? Turning from the violence that he's doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, does God see the heart? Yeah. Does he evaluate the way man does? No. God seeing what they did is important, though, because it's revealing of the faith and repentant heart they truly had. They turned from their evil way. Wow, God, why did God need to notice that? God sees all things. He sees the presence of faith. But the doing, it's not like God goes, oh, they did it. Now I know they truly believed. It's what they did he saw as an expression of the faith he already saw was present. He sees right through to the heart. But what's interesting is what they did is in focus. They turned from their evil way. Therefore, God didn't do what he said he'd do. In other words, God relented because people changed their position and relationship with him. He changed, you might say, what he intended to do to them. Matthew 23, this is, this is really telling. And then I want to talk about false prophets and we're done. No James 2 today. Just, it doesn't make sense for me to address it. Listen to what Jesus says of the Pharisees, okay? Matthew 23, 25 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The woe. Hitting the woe, does that sound like it's a good thing? That they're called hypocrites? Because some would really force the idea into this text. These are believers, you know. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside, inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside. In other words, what is it that needs to be addressed within the human heart or within the person? It's the heart. That's the issue. Pharisees are all about the external tithing, cumin and mint and dill and everything they can do and looking like they're giving and looking like they're praying and looking like they're fasting. It's all about the outside, how they appear, how they look, to get attention, to get approval, to sound spiritual, to look religious and holy. But inside, they're full of nastiness. Like a nasty little sewage. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup that the outside also Maybe clean. What is Jesus? And, and look, this should cause the Pharisees to go, we, we can't clean the inside of the cup. What do you mean? It should cause them to realize they can't change the inside, but they can change their mind and turn to God for righteousness. And by doing that, God changes the inside of the person. New heart, new nature, new identity, new position. The inside of the cup is clean. It's available. But notice what Jesus says follows 
the cleaning of the inside of the cup. If the cup gets cleaned inside, the outside also will be clean. What in, in the mind of Jesus seems to follow God cleansing us from our sin, making us righteous, washing us in his blood, when we believe that all happens, what is going, what is the expected result that seems to be guaranteed of someone who's been cleaned inside? Well, it's at the outside, the activities, the works, the doing, what's seen by the world, that will also become clean as a result. You scribes and Pharisees, woe to you. You're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly look beautiful, profess to know God, sound spiritual, call him Lord, but inside you're full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. Outwardly, you appear righteous to others, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If the inside is clean, in the mind of Christ, the outside will follow. If you guys have not already watched uh, my series on prophecy, the gift of prophecy, what I'm about to do is do a quick summary of something I've done in depth, okay? So I've taught on this in depth. It's all about false prophets. I believe it's like episode four or five, okay? False prophets. What you always see connected to a false prophet is a way of life, wickedness, sin, adultery, idolatry, sexual perversion, whatever it is. So I'm just going to go through the scriptures. You can read these on your own or go watch the message where I spend like an hour and a half, two hours on this. Just know that if, if unbelief and false prophets have a life of sin attached, bro, what do you think God's people are going to look like? And it is expected. It is by the grace of God a guaranteed thing. Jude chapter 1 verse 5 through 16 tells us the lifestyle of the false prophet is characterized by sin. They're called fruitless trees. Jude chapter 1 19 and 20 says they're devoid of the spirit. Okay. 2 Peter 1 1 through 3 and verse 9 through 19 says the false prophets, though they're characterized by unbelief, are also living in sin. Jeremiah 23, 9 through 32 is the clearest and best description in the Old Testament of what a false prophet is. So if you want to know what a false prophet is, and not just getting that idea or definition from your favorite pastor, go to Jeremiah 23, verse 9 through 32. You'll see all the different things. In fact, let, let me just list it out for you to show you what is expected and attached to a life of unbelief and even perverting of the truth as a false prophet. Okay, They're ungodly. They're doing evil, they lead people astray, they commit adultery, they walk in lies, they encourage sin, which I think a perversion of grace, free grace extreme individuals, I know you won't say you're doing that, but you are. Their ungodliness marks their life, they do whatever they feel and, and, and think and see in their own minds. Um, they don't stand in the counsel of God, they proclaim not the truth to the people of God, they just rely on dreams. Um, they prophesy lying dreams. They look to false gods. I mean, Jeremiah 5, 12 through 13, the false prophets don't have the word of God in them. Jeremiah 4, 14, 13 through 18, it says they have no knowledge of God and they're marked by divination, deception, sin. 
Jeremiah 29, 20 through 32, they engage in wickedness. They do rebellious things. Lamentations 2, 14, the prophets mislead people. They, they don't expose iniquity. They encourage sin to keep going on. They encourage disobedience. Oh, we're good, we're good, we're good. Does that not sound somewhat of the free grace extremist stance? Ezekiel 13, 1 through 11, the false prophets are marked by conscious deception and falsehood and, and lying and divination. Matthew 7, the false prophet bears bad fruit. Matthew 24, they lead astray. In 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 7, they oppose false doctrine, they lead astray, and they live sin, live in sin. Why would we expect that someone who is, has genuine faith, is a child of God, is going to look just like that? Just because free will is a part of the equation doesn't mean we should expect only sin for someone who believes. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. Just because we have free will doesn't mean we should expect a believer to be someone who is who can all who can only sin or who who will always sin if if here's a person who always sins and that's all they do there's no love for god no love for people no change no transformation no fruit no nothing nothing they look worse than most unbelievers right you can go to first corinthians and be like but look at the look at the 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 carnal christians here just a fundamentally different experience because just because they were carnal in some ways doesn't mean they were carnal in every way does that make sense so don't run to 1 Corinthians and be like, carnal Christians, here's your example. To be carnal in some ways is not to bear fruit in no ways at all. They're clearly bearing fruit and doing other things that are right, but there's a lot that needs to be corrected. And through that correction, God brings change and transformation. So that kind of falls on its face. I'm not saying there aren't carnal Christians. I'm not saying people don't struggle and have seasons of sin. I'm saying eventually you should see a... I mean, Take that back. Eventually, genuine faith will produce some transformation. Change, fruit, works, character, desires, heart, something changes. It's undeniable at this point. It is for me. I'm not going to go to James 2. As much as I studied it and how the word sinner is used and how the word save is used and how the word faith is used and how their statements made to unbelievers. I'm not going to go to James 2, okay? Eventually, maybe I'll do a teaching on it. It's just, at this point, it's extra. It's overkill. It'd be overkill. I will address it later in like a separate message once I'm more confident on my stance with it. But as of right now, I'm not, I, first of all, don't need James 2 to support any of my other claims from the scriptures. Secondly, um, I'm not entirely sure what's actually being said in James 2 because both perspectives are so uh, reasonable, so sound, uh, have evidence for both, and they're very logical. Um, so I don't need James 2. I don't. I did it. By the grace of God, Lord, you freaking did it through this weak 30-year-old vessel. Thank you. If you did not know this, you can go to abovereproachministry.com to find out everything about this ministry.
We have free Bible study devotionals, Bible study skills courses, Bible study worksheets. I have a book. There's ways that you can give to support this ministry. PayPal, Cash App, straight out a debit card, send a check. You can give through Patreon. You can buy some church merch. Um, you can join our online church on Discord. You can get some merch. You can hear our mission, our beliefs. All that stuff is at AboveReproachMinistry.com. We also have a second podcast. So everything I put on YouTube, I put on podcast. But there's also a second podcast, Above Reproach Church Podcast. You can find that here as well, linked in the description of this YouTube video. Guys, that is everything I possibly could have thought to talk about, reason through, when it comes to free grace or lordship. It, I don't know if it'll be helpful, but if I haven't explicitly said it yet, I don't hold to either camps. There's issues within both. There's pros and cons with both. Um, I, you don't need to hold to a camp. You don't need to identify as, are you, are you free grace or lordship? Just be able to define repentance. Just be able to define faith. Just be able to define salvation. Just be able to define what happens when you're saved. Just define what abiding is. Just define what fruit is. Just define how good works relate to the Christian life. Then you can let the chips fall where they do. And let people label you however they want. Oh, you're free grace. Oh, you're, you're lordship. I, I'm a, as best as I can see, I'm a well-balanced uh, version of both. Both come together. I appreciate what Lordship says about fruit and works to a degree. I appreciate what free grace talks about to a degree on grace and how it relates to it's just faith, it's just grace. But those need to be defined. So I hope this, what are we, two and a half hours in? What is that, 16? Almost 19 hours of, of content has been helpful. If, there's, if you have any family members, friends, fellow believers who struggle with this concept and just don't know, where do I go? Do I go to free grace? Do I go to lordship? Both, both are reasonable. Send this series to them. I encourage you, like I didn't put all this work into this so it can just stay local. I, I'm hoping that you'll get this out to people who need to hear this. This is killing people. This is crippling people. This is ruining people's mental health. They need to be able to define these terms and maybe I'll turn this into a book, but for now, it's almost 19 hours a straight me talking, standing up, holding my pee in, and just making sure I get every point across as best as I can by the grace of God. So I hope I've done that. I would love to hear your feedback on this series. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll do a Q&A. I feel if I do that, I'm inviting the wrong people. <laughs> I'm asking for trolls, and I just don't know if that's something I can mentally, emotionally deal with right now, especially when it comes to like, answering questions I've, it, that take a long time to answer that I've already answered. and they don't, They're not watching anything I'm putting out. They're just waiting to attack. So I don't think I'll do a Q&A now that I say it out loud. But guys, that's it. We did it. Join the online church. Come join us. Um, and I think that's it for today. Keep moving towards Jesus. The series is done. Praise the Lord. Thank you, God. And... I hope this has been helpful. I would love to know what stood out to you and what you learned throughout this whole series. Message me, comment on the videos. Let me know what has really helped you. All right, you guys have a good day. God bless you. Keep moving towards Jesus.